This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Tuesday, which means I don't have a lot of stuff to talk about. I'll get right to the to the questions, but let me introduce myself. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, and all you have to do is call 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585 if you're outside the local San Antonio area. You can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our wonderful studio producer who will get you right on the phone. 340-9585 is our primary number. Let me get right to questions. The first one comes from Ralph. He says, Is there an authority hierarchy in the Trinity? Um, Ralph, there is a hierarchy, but it, it has nothing to do with authority. Uh, this is hard to explain to people because when we think about hierarchy, there's there's the person in charge, then there's next, and then next. And we've got the Father as the first person of the Trinity, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and of course, the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity. And while they willingly, uh, voluntarily accept their roles... There's no authority difference because they are all completely and fully God. Maybe this will help explain. We have a tendency to look at God the Father as sort of the owner, and Jesus is his primary manager, and then the Holy Spirit is Jesus' assistant. That's not the case. God revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. God the Father revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is submitted to the will of his Father, but the will of his Father is exactly the same as his will. There's perfect unity. There's not an issue uh, between them at all. Um, the, The Spirit was sent by Jesus to reveal the person of Jesus to the people that God is trying to convince that he wants them to be in heaven with him forever. So the Holy Spirit has a job. The Spirit's job is to reveal the person of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus was sent by the Father to reveal the person of the Father. 
And the Father was just sort of the sending agent. And from the beginning, the very beginning, they were always in perfect unity. This isn't a, a we took a vote and it's two to one against you, so you have to do this. It wasn't that at all. So we understand hierarchy differently than heaven understands hierarchy. And obviously, Ralph, we won't understand that until we get to heaven. So, yes, the Son was submitted in his incarnation to the Father, Philippians chapter 2. And yes, the Holy Spirit never speaks of himself, but when Jesus sent him, his message is always about Jesus. In heaven, they are one, three separate persons, but one God, complete in, uh, completely unified in every aspect, every attribute of their deity. And so there's no line between them. You know, it's hard for us, uh, I'll use marriage as an example, when we say, wives, submit your husbands as unto the Lord, we immediately have an authority hierarchy that, that is implied but when we understand the partnership God wants in a marriage, husbands love your wives the way Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her, you can understand that there would be no problem submitting to the leadership of a husband who put your needs ahead of his. Well, the marriage is supposed to be a picture of that unity. And when we forget we're partners, equals, just different roles, that's when we find ourselves in a little bit of trouble. So, Ralph, I hope that makes sense to you, but but there is a hierarchy, Father, Son, and Spirit, but it's not an authority hierarchy. Uh, All are completely God. Good question. Haven't had that one in a long, long time. Margaret asked this question. What is a red-letter Christian? Margaret, when uh, just before the show starts, we've always got a, a pot full of kids in here, little kids, they come in and they pray for the radio program. And some of the, the the younger ones, they love to read the questions that I have. It's always on my screen. And um, they like to answer the questions. So uh, today they've got to yours. What's a red-letter Christian? They had no idea what that was. So let me explain to you the way I explained to them. In our English Bibles, the letters of Jesus are always printed. Not always, but most of the time they're printed in red. And so... There is a group of Christians, now I sometimes question the validity of their faith, but there are Christians, professing Christians, who say that only the words of Jesus in the Bible really have value or really have importance. And so what they'll do is they'll take the words of Paul, and this is because they don't understand the Bible at all, but they'll take the the, the writings of Paul or James or Peter or John or any of the others, and they'll say, well, we don't have to really pay that much attention to them. As for me, I just follow Jesus. Now, you know what's interesting, Margaret, is Paul addressed this sort of mentality in his letter to the church at Corinth. He was scolding them. And I mean, literally, he was scolding them in First Corinthians. Uh, and one of the things he was scolding them about was the division that had arisen uh, in, inside the church. Um, he, he said, well, some of you say, I'm of Paul. Others of you say, I'm of Apollos. Um, um, others say, I'm of Peter. And then there, there was a fourth group said, well, I'm of Christ. And, and he corrected them. Peter, Paul, Apollos, 
And of course, Jesus, they all had the same message. And so a red-letter Christian, by definition, is a Christian who doesn't believe in the Bible, not all of it, just the red letters, but, but again, they even are very selective about those. So, Margaret, I think the takeaway here is to understand that every word in our Bible carries equal authority. doesn't matter who the speaker was. What the Bible says in context, what the author intended to communicate, is written by the Holy Spirit. It's the pen of man being pushed by the power of God's Holy Spirit. So if we take the approach that, well, Jesus, he said stuff that's more important, or Jesus didn't say anything, I'll give you a current example, about homosexuality, so it must be okay. That's a, a person who fails, and usually they do so because they want to, but they fail to understand how we got our Bible. They fail to understand uh, what the Bible really is. Margaret, the Word of God, your Bible, every word is written by the Lord, Every word has equal value, and none of it will contradict words written by anybody else. So it's very important that we get that. So I hope that understands. Carl, here's another question I haven't had for a while. Oops, I've got a phone call. Let me go there first before I get to Carl's question. Let's go to Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Monday night we're um, studying Colossians now for the ladies' study, and it got me thinking about Paul. And I was, I've got a few questions about him. I was wondering how old do you think he was when Christ was crucified, and do you think he was um, old enough that he was still go- that he was going around persecuting Christians before Christ was crucified, and then how old would he have been? when Christ was crucified, and how old do you think uh, Paul was when he accepted the Lord on, on the road to Damaeus? And then, how old do you think he was when he wrote the book of Colossians? So these are all the little I wonders that I, I have today. I'll get off the phone and let you answer. Bye. Bye, Cindy. Thanks very much. Um, Monday night is our uh, women's Bible study, and Cindy was at the study. They began the book of Colossians. Uh, just last night. Um, Cindy, we don't have specific answers to your questions. Now, um, the study that I have done, I believe that Paul was about the same age as Jesus. Now, that would mean that he was in the 30 to 33-year-old range uh, at the time uh, Jesus was crucified. Um, Jesus' ministry uh, widely is accepted to have lasted uh, and through his early 30s, about 33 years on this earth. And uh, Paul would have been a contemporary of Jesus, at least in terms of age and, and uh, how he would have been involved in the, uh, um, in, in the persecution of Jesus. Now, um, there's a lot we don't know about Paul. He, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. What that means is that um, he was, um, he says his own words, he was advancing in Judaism well beyond his age. Uh, he was on the fast track. And I believe that the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus at the time, uh, was at least tangentially involved in those, um, you know, I call them unholy huddle sessions, you know, when all of the, the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law uh, would get together and try to decide what to do about Jesus. I think Paul was there. I think Paul 
would have known, although these men would have been older, Paul would have known and been heavily influenced by and heavily angered by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Um, uh, so, so I think his persecution of Jesus uh, would have taken the approach of, well, let's see if we can stop this thing. We're going to put him to death. So I think he was a part of them, would have heard Jesus continually teaching, and, and his anger would have grown and grown and grown. Um, how old he was when he wrote the book of Colossians. We know that Colossians is one of the prison epistles. So this would have been uh, something that took place uh, later in his life. Um, probably uh, he would have been a man in his um, early 50s, maybe mid-50s, when he was in prison for the first time in Rome. And um, probably, uh, again, we don't have any uh, way to be sure, but probably Paul himself was put to death uh, as he approached 60 years of age or maybe in his very, very early 60s. So he would have been a contemporary of Jesus in terms of age. Um, How old he was on the road to Damascus when he was apprehended by the Lord, there's really, again, no way of knowing for sure Uh, But I'm going to put it in the um, 35-ish range. Uh, You see, after Jesus was risen from the dead, and the first sermon was preached, I believe Paul was there on the day of Pentecost, uh, as the first sermon was preached and 3,000 people got saved, I think Saul of Tarsus' anger would have been um, unmanageable for him. And that's why he would have gone to the chief priests and the elders for permission uh, to go uh, out persecuting them. I'm going to go get them. I'm going to stop this thing. It literally broke his heart that Jews were deserting his word. Jews were deserting their faith for this new thing that was at that time called the way. And in his anger, his response was to persecute and put some in jail and give others permission to death. We know that Saul of Tarsus was there when Stephen was put to death. In fact, Saul of Tarsus was the one who gave um, the thumbs up to his stoning. Without Saul's authority to do it, uh, Stephen wouldn't have been stoned to death. So Stephen um, was just one example. I think that was an example that haunted him. I I imagine Saul, if, if he was... Uh, at the cross when Jesus was crucified, and I believe personally he was, uh, he would have heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he wouldn't have been able to deal with that. And then later, at Stephen, he would have heard Stephen say, Father, lay not this sin to their their account. And it would have been devastating to him, but that was just the Holy Spirit really beginning to work on him. And... uh, as we know, Jesus grabbed him on the road to Damascus. So, Cindy, good question. Um, I got lots of them. If you, if you like reading, Cindy, there's a great book. It's called uh, The Heart of the Apostle Set Free uh, by F.F. F. Bruce. Um, it is, in my opinion, by far the best work on the life and ministry and the transformation of the Apostle Paul. Good questions. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Carl writes in, he says, uh, Pastor Ron, I want to know who the 144,000 in Revelation are. 
Uh, Carl, 144,000, and I, I imagine your confusion comes in because Jehovah's Witnesses have forever misunderstood the 144,000, claimed that there were only going to be 144,000 witnesses that made it to heaven. Of course, we know that's not true. Now, the, the problem with the question, Carl, is the Bible tells us exactly who they are. We don't have to guess. There's 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that multiplied is 144,000. And these men have a specific ministry. They have a very specific role to accomplish. And that role is to be witnesses. God is going to mark them during the Great Tribulation, seal them so they they can't be harmed. Uh, They they are invincible. All of the 144,000 will live uh, throughout the entirety of the Great Tribulation. And they will be sent all over the world during the Great Tribulation, the last seven years, we, the church, will be gone. But these 144,000 Jews, these are men who were God-seekers, God-fearers. They will be converted um, under the ministry of the two witnesses um, um, at the Western Wall, Moses and Elijah. Um, But when they get their commission and they're empowered by the Spirit, they will go out with the power to do miracles. Uh, they will lead a revival, the greatest revival the world has ever seen or ever will see. Uh, and uh, and they will, as I said, live through the whole Great Tribulation. So uh, they've got a work to do. Imagine, Carl, 144,000 Apostle Pauls running the earth. And that's why the revival is going to be so great. So 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, they are Jews. They're men who are pure, um, uh, unmarried men who have never been with a woman. Um, and, and they're men who had a heart for God. And their heart was right, even though their information was wrong. And they're going to hear the message. They're going to receive it from Moses and Elijah. And then they're going to be empowered to go out and do this marvelous, marvelous work. So that's who they are. Don't let anybody tell you anything differently. Here is an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, can I use medical marijuana to take away my constant pain? I'm 60 years old, and I'm not doing it to get high. Um, Anonymous, this is going to be something I won't give you permission to do. Um, Romans 14.23 says, If anything uh, is not of faith, it's sin. And uh, whenever I get a question like this, I'm thinking that the Holy Spirit's already trying to check you. Um, Marijuana, whether it's medical or not, is a mind-altering substance. And we get high in an instant. As soon as we inhale it, we get high. So um, generally, my counsel to people is no, no. I see way too many people using medical marijuana. That's the way they characterize it, just because they want to use marijuana. And that's sort of, we'll see, it's legal or it's okay for me because. Um, but but here's the thing. I want to give you the freedom to seek the Lord for yourself. At 60 years of age, you said you're not doing it to get high. I'll take you at your word. But the fact remains that you get high. Whether you, that was your intent or not, you get high. And Jesus said we're to be sober-minded. The Word of God says we're to be sober-minded. 
And I just see this being abused so much. Now let me also say, and I hope I'm not, don't sound like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth here. We had a terminal woman in our church who one of the effects of her medication was unbearable itching. And there was nothing that could be done. And somebody suggested that she try smoking marijuana and it took away the itching and she lived for another month and she did it without pain and agony. Again, this is one of those things where you have to take the responsibility, Anonymous, to really, really seek the Lord. Don't ask people. Don't wait for somebody else. Seek the Lord. He knows your heart. He knows your needs. Maybe like the Apostle Paul, he'll tell you that his grace is sufficient. Maybe he will tell you it's okay. But you've got to wrestle with him in prayer to find out the answer. Let's go to Federico, our friend on line one from San Antonio. Federico, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Gloria a Dios, bienaventurado. Gracias. I got a question. In many Hispanic churches, it, it's become a custom to call the pastor's wife pastora. Is that <laughs> biblical to call the pastor's wife pastoress? I guess it would be in English. Uh, yeah, Federico, you know, we we got these traditions and in the black church it's they call the pastor's wife the first lady. And as you can imagine, we get we get people coming from all over different traditions here and, and, and Paula gets called everything from pastor to pastora to first lady and she's always telling people, No, 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 no. I'm the pastor's wife. So no, it's not biblical and and uh, again I understand people's hearts are right and they want to honor and respect their yeah. pastor's wife as they should. Yeah. Um but we 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 sometimes in our culture forget that that we're all just servants of the most high God and the the, the greatest title any of us can have is servant of God. So I don't uh, think it's biblical. I don't think it's healthy. Uh and I think uh, a lot of times uh, the enemy uses those titles to sort of get the women in the church to be a little bit puffed up, a little bit too full of themselves. So yeah, at, yeah. at our church, Federico, it's something that we really, really respond to. And Paula's been really good about it over the years. No, she's not first lady. She's not a pastor. She's just married <laughs> to the pastor. But still, and that gets her sympathy. We honor her. Yes, we honor her as the pastor's wife. So. But uh, yeah. I think I, I just believe the word, the title itself is, I think is being uh, misused. Yep, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with well, you very much. Thank you, Pastor, and uh, keep me in your prayer, and I love your show. You have so many wonderful insights, hindsights. Thank and you, Federico. God bless you. God you forever. Amen. You got it. Thank you very, very much. You know, this is a this is an issue that we've dealt with for all of our years here. Um, I don't care if people call me pastor. They do, most of them. Um, but pastor is what I do. I'm not attached to the title. Now, I consider it um, the second greatest honor in my life. Uh, being being Paula's husband is, is the, the greatest honor in my life. But the second greatest honor is is that people consider me their pastor. And yet I, I'm only the pastor because that's what I do. That's shepherding the flock. I'm, 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 I'm doing what Jesus told Peter to do, feeding the flock, I'm tending the flock, I'm caring for, loving the flock. 
And so that's what I do, and I understand that. But if somebody comes up and says, uh, Ron, or or uh, something else, then, then I, 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 I don't take offense at that at all. I'm not connected to a title. Uh, what I hopefully am connected to is the privilege of being the pastor. That means God can trust me with people that he really loves. And when I look out, Federico, over the body that, that the Lord has blessed me with over these 24 and a half years, um, all I can think about is is what an honor this is, Lord. What an honor that I'm called Pastor Ron. And uh, Paul is content, I think, just being married to me. And uh, she certainly doesn't need a title. And she is, uh, I call her our love bomb or our love rocket here in the church because um, she's the one that's always out um, looking for opportunities to love on the people that God has brought to us. And because her heart is so willing, God has asked her to do some really difficult things from time to time. Uh, challenging things, but life-changing things as well. So all we need is our names. You know, the only title I don't like is Pastor Arbaugh. That just makes me sound to me now. This is just me, my 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 issue. It makes me feel like I'm 150 years old. Um, I'm either Pastor on, I'm on, or I'm Pastor. Whatever you want to call me is going to be fine. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in today's program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-5757. We'd love your calls. We'll be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the Word to Stand On for Life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show, 340-9585. My producer said, hey, I was waiting for you to say something about the title Reverend. And I said, I don't even think like that, but that's the worst thing to call any other human being, reverend. Uh, I'm not very reverend, and, and there was only one reverend who walked this earth. His name was Jesus. Here is a question from Sonia on our email inbox, from our email inbox. She says, good evening, I'm Sonia. I called your date day show and asked advice to a wife that her husband just left her for another woman a couple of months ago. Uh, this is my second marriage. We've been married for almost 15 years in February. I retired three years ago. We have a business together, rental houses. Uh, The Lord has blessed us tremendously. My husband and I attended church every Sunday. We gave our tithes always. This was a shock to me, something that came out of nowhere. My husband has not asked for a divorce. I'm 61 years old. I have two grown children. They do not live with me. They have their families. Your wife said, let him go. So I have a couple of more questions. Do I not ask God in prayer to save him and bring him back home? Do I not hope in God that he can do a miracle in his life and one day we can reconcile? Or do I just give up and move on? Or what do I pray for? Thank you for taking the time 
and advice for me. God bless you. Sonia, uh, I remember your call, and I'm really, really sorry. And I think um, uh, in, you misunderstood Paul's response a little bit. That was just one option. Now, this is really important, so I'm going to be very careful with my, my response. Of course you ask God to save him and bring him back home. However, having said that, when he broke the marriage covenant, when he committed adultery, the Bible gives you the freedom to move on. Uh, Paulus, oops. Paula, uh, sorry, I've never left my phone on in this program before, and I just did. Um, the If the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. Now, your husband's taking you to church. Uh, he may not be an unbeliever, but by acting like an unbeliever and breaking the marriage covenant, he has granted you the freedom to do whatever you believe the Lord is asking you to do. I'll go one step farther and say, I think God's first choice is always reconciliation. Yes, you ought to ask God to save him and and to restore the marriage. Um, But the reality is that doesn't always, in fact, it doesn't often happen. So God's giving you freedom, but you use that freedom to find out what God's will is. Now, here's why I say that. So when you God knows the future. And if you go to the Lord as the victim here, if you go to the Lord and say, should I wait for my husband? Should I, should I leave him? Should I divorce him? Um, what should I do? God knows what he's going to do. You don't. I don't. God knows exactly what he's going to do. And based on what God knows, God will tell you to wait and to pray for him. Or God will tell you to let him go. And you don't make the decision out of anger. You don't make it emotionally. You just, I want your will for my life, Lord. And regardless of what happens to your husband, you want him to get saved. So you want God to bring him to repentance. But whether or not you wait for him, and should he repent, you allow him to come back, is is your choice to make. You are not bound to do anything. You have been given the freedom to do what it is you want to do or what God puts it on your heart to do. I pray that that he will repent and, and you can be reconciled. However, um, I understand how difficult it is. We've got situations like this that have gone on in our church over the years. And the pain of, uh, of a spouse watching their spouse, it's been for us, husbands and wives who've left, um, to watch them pursue an ungodly, immoral sexual relationship with somebody else is unspeakably painful. So um, you can do what you want to do. Um, if you leave him, you're not just giving up. He's the one who gave up on the marriage. So don't do any guilt. Whatever the Lord is leading you to do, do without condemnation. Don't listen to even well-meaning Christians who can say, well, you know God hates divorce. Um, just... Do what it is he's putting on your heart to do. That's very, very important. Um, You're in my age category. I'm older than you are, but you're in the category. I understand how difficult that is. Remember the God who blessed you immensely. Remember the God 
uh, who's given you, um, who, who gave his life for you, and use a grateful heart, even in this painful time, to seek the Lord for his direction because he knows the future and we don't. And Paul is saying, let him go uh, was, was just one of the options that we discussed on that program. Sonia, I'm going to be praying for you. Please uh, keep in touch. I appreciate it very, very much. Those are always really, really hard things. Let's go to Jeff calling on line one. Jeff, thanks for holding. You're on the air. A big virtual Jesus hug to you, Pastor Ron. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Hey, uh, that was uh, quite a uh, um, touching and difficult um, pastor's discipleship uh, class on Saturday. And I wondered if you would recap a little bit uh, again about, you know, parents need, should not ever compromise uh, our godly values with our kids, uh, especially because once we do start to let let go or go soft on that, that it creates inroads for uh, manipulation. And uh, you know, I'll let you, I'll let you let you run with it. But that was really uh, that was awesome. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for showing up. It was really really nice, and to see you and your beautiful wife is always a blessing. So. Um, thanks for coming. Um, one of the things we talked about, we, we've, you know, our responsibility as parents. Now, for, for those of you who don't know, um, I've been having a pastor's discipleship class for all of the years that we've been here at Calvary Chapel. Um, it's uh, every other Saturday uh, from 1030 to 1230. It started out as a, as a class to disciple men who were going to become pastors or men who felt they were called to be pastors or, or maybe they just wanted to find out if they'd been called to be pastors. And at the beginning, we had a real emphasis on planting churches. We planted 32 churches out of our church, and and um, um, every one of those men, all of my elders, by the way, have come out of my uh, that pastor's discipleship class. But after a couple of years of doing that, um, uh, some of the women approached Paul and said, well, could we have a class since at the same time? And so Paula did it for a while. Uh, one day I had something important come up and I said, let's get everybody together, husbands and wives together. And and there were there single people in the class too, but in this case, it just let's get everybody together. And we had a, a, a class and everybody enjoyed it so much that from that time forward, we've been doing it together. So we got the husbands and their wives uh, over the years, as we've planted a bunch of churches and God's God's uh, emphasis for our ministry has, has grown a little bit, has moved on, um, um, other people start expressing an interest to come. Uh, people didn't know what they're called for. We've got single men, single women. We've got uh, um, people that know what they're called to do, people that have no idea what they're called to do. Um, sometimes young people get saved. They're so excited. They just want to be involved in, in more so really, it's a class now where we're, we're, we're trying to disciple people to really dig in with Jesus. And uh, as Jeff could tell you, uh, being there, uh, I'm even more direct in that class. These are people who have said, uh, I want to learn. Uh, I'm even more direct than I normally am. And I'm pretty direct all the time. So um, it's been a really, really uh, beneficial, fruitful ministry for us over these many, many years. 
this Saturday, one of the things that we were talking about was um, the role of a parent. Um, we parents uh, are so inconsistent at times our children get turned off of our faith. You know, they're looking for parents to be hypocrites and uh, you know, the parents are looking for to say, do as I say and not as I do. And, and Jesus holds us to a higher standard. So what I was sharing in part was that we who are parents, godly parents, what we need to do is always walk in the light so that our kids can't find hypocrisy, so that kids will grow up knowing that mom's Jesus, dad's Jesus was real. They loved him and they could see the power of God move in and through their family. That way, when they go out and they're accountable to make their own choices, uh, what will happen is they'll want mom and dad's Jesus. And when we start compromising, especially in this day and age where our kids go out, they move out, kind of in rebellion, uh, they fall and crash and burn, and then they move back home, but having been independent, they don't want to follow the rules. And what we talked about was the need to have consistent rules. It's God's house. Every parent who has a, a, an older child living at home needs to understand that that child has to go to church. And we got these grown kids who say, well, I'm too old for that. You, you, I, you, don't, you can't cram it down my throat. No, I can't. I can't make you choose. But here's what I can do. I can tell you, you can't live here anymore. And we had a couple of examples that we, with parents in the meeting uh, who's older children got saved because of mom and dad's consistency, consistent love, but also consistent way of living their lives. And parents have got to be committed. You know, if a parent is drinking at home, you have no authority to tell your children not to drink when they go out. If you lose your temper and you're raising your voice, there's a lot of volume in your home, you're not representing the love of Christ, you're misrepresenting it. And so we've got to understand we can't use foul language because we're adults. We can't watch horrible things on TV or in movies simply because, well, it's our house and we're the adult. We've got to be aware that our children are watching us. And we just don't do it. We'll let these grown kids stay home and play video games. We won't force them to go out and get a job. We won't ask them to contribute to the house. And we're not teaching them responsibility. We're letting them sin. We're, we're aiding and abetting in their rebellion against God. So the gist of it was, in your home, a home that belongs to Jesus, be consistent and don't apologize to your children for saying, well, these are the rules of the house. Paul and I did that with our children. Um, we had mixed results. But here's the thing, our kids, and this is now 29 years ago, almost 30 years ago, 29 years ago. Um, as a result, the kids who were really angry with me, and believe me, they were. When I got saved, my kids were angry. Um, we're friends. They love me. They like seeing me. Both of my grown boys kiss me on the lips when they see me. I mean, we're, we're, they're, they're wonderful men. That wouldn't have happened 
had we not been consistent in our witness for Jesus. So thanks, Jeff, for being here. I appreciate it very, very much. Um, by the way, if anybody in the audience is interested in coming to a pastor's discipleship class and checking it out, it's from 1030 to 1230 every other Saturday. We we had one last Saturday, so this Saturday we won't. The following Saturday we will. And the only time we ever cancel them is if I'm out of town or something. So uh, we'd love to have you. And again, husbands and wives, men and women, single or otherwise, are invited to the class. Jeff, thanks. I appreciate it. Here is a question from, uh, came, comes in anonymously. Uh, Pastor Ron, I'm a smoker who has been convicted to stop, but I can't. Does God consider addiction? Will he forgive me? Uh, anonymous, he's already forgiven you. He's already forgiven you. But what I want to do is take issue with the but I can't. Now, I understand in your own strength, exercising willpower, you can't. But remember what Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is a matter of faith. And if God has been convicting you to stop, it means that he has a plan for you. And you're going to better be able to fulfill that plan without cigarettes. So nobody will call Now, it's not a sin to smoke. It's a sin for this person to smoke. I, I said earlier, Romans 14, 23 says, anything not of faith is sin. So when God comes along and convicts you of sin, says stop doing it, then something that wasn't inherently sinful becomes a sin for you. And what we have to do is understand that God is simply trying to prepare us for the ministry he has waiting for us. And it's going to be for more ministry, for great ministry, but he's just saying, let's give you this test. How much do you love me? Do you love me enough to stop smoking so that I can use you in situations where smoking would be inappropriate? Now, relative to whether God considers addiction or not, I hate the term because addiction in our culture is an excuse to keep sinning. Now, I understand well the physical addictive properties of Cigarettes. I understand well. But if you were to stop today, and most people that try to stop smoking, they make it a few days. By the time you've made it three or four days, the physical need for nicotine is gone. And the problem becomes mental. And so, we don't have to give in. We're not physically addicted anymore. We just buy the lie of the enemy that, well, I'm addicted, I can't stop. We've got sex addiction, cigarette addiction, drug addiction, um, texting addiction. Um, But God gives you a sound mind. And you can stop. Here's part of the problem, Anonymous. Somebody who's trying to quit smoking, again, I'm aware of how difficult it is, all they think about is, I'm not going to smoke, I'm not going to smoke, I'm not going to smoke. Until they find themselves with a cigarette again. And I wouldn't tell you that. I'd tell you to replace what you're thinking with the Word of God. Replace thinking about cigarettes with thinking about being with Jesus. Then go take a walk with Jesus. If every time you get the urge to smoke, instead of saying, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. If every time you do that, you'd open the Bible and read it. I promise you God would give you the strength to quit. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to take away the craving or the desire. 
But he's going to give you the ability to withstand that desire, to withstand that temptation. And every time, this is what I would do, every time that I wanted a cigarette, I'd say no, because that's going to limit my ministry to the Lord. And every one of us, now I'm a big freedom guy, okay? Uh, we've got people that I love with all of my heart here at Calvary Chapel who smokes. And I've never said anything to make any one of them feel guilty. One time a guy said, oh, you caught me smoking. I'm so sorry. I, I said, don't, uh, you don't have to apologize to me. If you're convicted about smoking, Jesus is the one you need to say you're sorry to. I love you. It doesn't matter. Um, but every one of us, what we ought to do is strive not to limit our potential ministry. Uh, my pastors, I've told them regarding tattoos, and I don't care about tattoos. Somebody got a tat, that's great. I actually like them. I don't like them on me because it would hurt to get one. I especially like tattoos that are color, colorful. Um, but I, I tell every one of the pastors, prayerfully consider getting more tattoos before you say yes, before you do it. And here's what I tell. Every time you get tattoos that show, every time you increase the number, quantity of tattoos that you have, you're limiting your ability to minister to someone who looked at that tattoo and won't hear a word that you have to say. And my pastors, some of them have tats. But all I want him to do, God knows his plan for him, all I want him to do is consider prayerfully what God wants him to do regarding a tattoo. Every single thing, every single thing, we ought to take before the Lord before making permanent decisions like that. So Anonymous, I hope that makes sense to you. You can stop in the power of God. You cannot stop in your own strength because in your own strength you don't even want to. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let's go to my next question. Comes from Renee. She says, "It seems to me like people are getting harder and harder hearted. The discourse, the way uh, we view those coming from other countries, it's all so harsh. Do you agree, or am I just running out of hope?" Well, Renee, I don't want you to run out of hope, but yes, I agree with you. But this isn't something that should surprise us. Um. 2 Timothy chapter 3 begins, um, Timothy, mark this, in the last days there will be terrible times, or another translation says perilous times. And then he describes the, the kind of behavior that we're going to see. And the closer we get to the end, the more that behavior. He said that people will be without natural affection. And that's a word, a Greek word picture. It describes the love of a mother for a, for a newborn child. Uh, um, they'll be disobedient, they'll be, be hateful toward parents, they will hate God. And, and that's what we see going around. So yes, people are getting harder and harder hearted. And we talk about people badly, we take shots at them on social media. Um, we do have a harsh view formed by media or media access from people that are coming from other countries, refugees and immigrants. Um, but again, none of this should surprise us because Jesus told us in his word that this is the way it was going to be. So let me deal with something. Renee, the way you can deal with this is to make sure that you aren't getting hard-hearted. If you lose hope, the enemy is going to take advantage of that. And he's going to try 
to get you just to give up? Look at people through the eyes of Jesus. I used to walking the streets, look in people's eyes as I'd get ready to pass them because I wanted to know if they were saved. I was looking for an opportunity. Lord, give me an opportunity to share Jesus with them. And if you do that, you won't get hard-hearted. I can promise you that. Um, we need to be careful about how we speak, the language we use, the tone of language that we use. So make sure that your speech is seasoned with grace. A little salt, that's what the gospel is, but seasoned with grace. Be kind and gentle, and God will use you to win others. And I think we, all of us, we need to look at every opportunity that God puts in front of us to minister to people. It doesn't matter where they're from. It doesn't matter what kind of lifestyle they're living. We need to understand that those are people that God loves. They're men and women that he wants in heaven. And I think, Renee, so often what we do is we pray for opportunities to share. Oh, Lord, uh, I'll give you one example. Um, there's a church, uh, a friend of mine, pastors in Southern California, uh, that if, if you had ICE come in and ask for papers, everybody would have to run out. But he's asked the Lord to grow his church and to, to, to bring people who are hungry for the word of God. And that's exactly what's happened. God has filled that church with illegals. Now they live in a place where uh, there's amnesty for illegals, so this isn't a political statement. But uh, imagine not ministering the love of Jesus Christ to them simply because they're in your church, but they've come to our country illegally. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not condoning violating the laws. I'm not taking a position on this. I'm just saying that as believers, our job is to love our neighbor, our neighbors, whoever God brings in front of us. And yet that pastor gets criticized often by others. So what we need to do is be ready to love the people that God brings in front of you. I was saying to our pastor the discipleship class this last Saturday that, that our church, uh, we are so blessed with, with the diversity that we have here. Uh, we've planted, we just sent our third church going into Mexico. And um, we do that because we love people. We want them to hear the gospel. Wherever God sends us, that's where we want to go. And I was telling them, look at this room, even in the pastor's discipleship class, but, but, but Sunday in the greater church body, we are so diverse, diverse in age, experience, um, economic background. We're, we're diverse in race and nationality. We're diverse in language. I've got a whole bunch of people, bunches of people come to this church and language is difficult because they understand Spanish a lot better than English. But look what God can do. So I hope that helps. Hey, thanks for the calls. Thanks for the questions today. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Have a great evening. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Oh, yeah.